All right, well, good morning. Uh, it's good to, yeah, you can say good morning back. Good morning. Thank you. Don't leave me up here by myself. I hope uh, uh, you are enjoying our time together uh, this morning, whether you're here at our Tyson's location or if you're uh, watching from one of our other locations here in the D.C. area or online or listening to this at some other point or watching it, it's good to be gathered under the authority of God's Word. You can go ahead and go to Mark 1, Mark chapter 1, and we're continuing uh, in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We've been making our way through Mark chapter 1 over the last few weeks in our series, Following Jesus. And before we dive into Mark 1, I want to point out just uh, two things. One, if you are attending any of our physical locations here at Tyson's, any of our other locations, you might have noticed a really big kind of following Jesus, almost like message board, like white board uh, out in the lobby. And it just gives us an opportunity to kind of interact with each other a bit. And so you'll see that it'll give you an opportunity to write on there, uh, I follow Jesus because fill in the blank. You can grab a marker and write that reason on there. Or one way I followed Jesus this week is, and you can write that. And so over the course of this series, Following Jesus, we just want to encourage one another as maybe sometimes, some weeks you'll have something to write. And to be honest, sometimes you just ain't going to have nothing to write. (laughs) But maybe in seeing what the Lord is doing in other people's lives will encourage you and encourage me. So I want to encourage you to participate in that. And the second thing I'm really excited about, October 15th, we're going to be doing another late night prayer. Uh, Everybody's invited. We're going to be gathering right here at our auditorium, uh, here at our Tyson's location, and spend some time together in concentrated prayer and worship. And so whether you're part of our church or not, you can feel free to invite friends, family, folks who just want to come and just enjoy engaging in the presence of God through prayer and worship Uh, So October 15th, we'll be here, 7 p.m., to spend some time in worship uh, together. Now, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, picking up in verse 21. And I want to read for us uh, from verse 21 before we pray and we dive uh, into our passage. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. It says, And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they, talking about all the people in the synagogue, they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray together and ask for God's blessing on his word as we we give him our attention. Father, we want to pause and we want to pray. And God, I, I ask, I ask for every single one of us, those of us who are followers of Jesus, those who are not, 
those of us who have had a good week, those of us who have had a, a bad week, we're all over the place. God, I pray that as we give you attention, as we listen to you through your word, God, I pray that you would not only speak to our hearts, but that you would work, you would work in our hearts, God. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> listen, I don't know if you've ever had uh, one of those situations that caused you to wonder who's in charge here. You may have felt like that when you came to church. I hope you didn't. But my family and I had that experience recently. We stayed in, in a hotel. I won't say what, what hotel chain it is, but we stayed in this hotel and me and my wife, we got three little kids. And so we, we booked a suite. We don't stay in hotels a lot. And we were just like, I just don't know if we can do this. You know what I'm saying? Like just all of us in the same room. And so we we're just like, we just need some extra space. And so we show up to the hotel. It wasn't Clearly, you'll see from the story, it wasn't a very nice hotel. And so we're like, all right, we're going to get a suite. We showed up. They didn't have suites available. I don't know how that works. We paid for one, but they, but they had like adjoining rooms, which actually is a good look. And so we had adjoining, two different rooms separated by the door. We're like, this is, is going to work out. We're going to put the kids, you know what I mean, in, 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 in that room. And we won't close the door all the way. You know, we'll leave it cracked. You know what I mean? We're not uh, negligent parents. You know what I'm saying? But we just want you to give them their space. And so we, we pull up to the hotel. We get there late at night. Our number one goal is to get the kids sleep. That's it. And so we get them in their room. And the first thing I notice is what looked like a massive coffee stain on the wall. As soon as you walk in, it was like somebody tripped and spilled coffee at the top of the wall. And it just cascaded down the wall. That was problem number one. But remember the goal. It's just to get the kids sleep. And I'm like, the kids, they don't know. They didn't even notice. It probably looked like decor to them. So, so we, just, we just get them sleeping. So we got two kids in one bed, and then there's a pull-out couch. And so I'm on duty trying to get that together. And then you go into you know, the closet or whatever, and they got the sheets and whatever and the little plastic thing. And so I pull that out, and I pull out the sheet. It's a stain on the sheet. I know, exactly. And so I call downstairs. I'm like, is it stain on the sheet? Can you, no problem. Well, you know, we'll, we'll send somebody up with some sheets. They never, they didn't even show up, you know what I mean? But, but it's just one goal, it's just to get the kids sleep, you know what I'm saying? And so we just like, we'll just make do, you know what I mean? And so, uh, so, so they, uh, we, we, we kind of get the kids going. I have to actually physically go downstairs because they never show up, take the sheets downstairs to the desk to be like, can you take these sheets and can you give me some new sheets? And, and so, we, you know, we get them in the bed or whatever, everything is good, whatever. And then I hear, I'm not even in my room yet, I hear dripping. And so I'm like, where is this coming from? So I go to where the bathroom area is, and they, the, the sink is kind of out, outside of the you know, bathroom or whatever. And I hear, so I look underneath the sink, it's exposed pipes, and the pipes are dripping. On the carpet, there's like, it's wet. There's like a puddle in the carpet. It's just dripping. But we had one goal. There's one goal. Just get the kids sleep. So I just, I was like, they're they not even going to hear it. And so I just grabbed the ice bucket and I put it, you know what I mean, because I'm like, it's going to take them too long to come upstairs and I just got to get them sleep. And so I get the ice bucket and I put it in, but that just made the dripping louder. So I just got a towel and put it in the ice bucket so they would mute the sound. And I'm like, the kids, it's not even going to be a problem. And by the time, it's not going to overflow by the time we wake up in the morning, everything will be fine. And, and some of y'all are like, I would have been, been gone by now. I understand, but it was late. I needed them sleep. And so, uh, so. So finally, the next morning, I go downstairs to get them breakfast. There's like a Starbucks. I'm not making this up. There's a Starbucks down there. I get them breakfast. I get myself coffee. I get to where they had the things. They had the little uh, sugar packets and the Splenda and like, you know, all that type of stuff in it. And I look in there. First of all, it was very sparse. 
You know what I mean? But it's fine. But then as I go to get a sugar packet, it's stuck. Here's why. Because somebody has spilled coffee all over the sugar packets. And it wasn't new because it was dry and sticky. And they were just stuck. So I, I said, man, 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 can, can we? And so she comes over and she just starts taking individual packets out. And I'm like, no, 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 man. We need to take the whole thing. We got to take the whole thing. We, got, we need to clean it. We need, you know what I mean? So, so, so I go up and I'm just thinking to myself, who is in charge here? Like, who in the world is it? Can I speak to somebody that actually has some authority to, to do something in this situation? You ever had one of those situations in a restaurant, at a hotel, and some of us have looked out in the world even, and we've wondered who, in the, who is in charge here? You've ever been scanning all the conflicting news headlines or scrolled through everybody's opinions on social media, and you've just thought, something is wrong. What is happening? Who's in charge? Who actually has any real, reliable authority around here? And I think that question is at the bottom of so much of what we're facing in our culture and society because I think we're having a crisis of authority where people are increasingly resistant to anyone telling them what is true or what is right, we've said, who's in charge here? And we've decided it's me. Tom Nichols has written about this. He's a professor in the Department of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. He's an expert in nuclear policy. And he said, I fear we are witnessing the death of expertise. He says... A, a, this is how he describes it, a Google-fueled, Wikipedia-based, blog-sotten collapse of any division between professionals and laymen, students and teachers, knowers and wonderers. In other words, between those of any achievement in an area and those with none at all. And he goes on to say, he's not talk, saying that all expertise has died. He says there's always going to be doctors and lawyers and engineers and specialists He says this, he says, rather what I fear has died is any acknowledgement of expertise as anything that should alter our thoughts or change the way we live. You see what he's saying here? He's saying there's this, what he calls death of expertise, I call it crisis of authority, where even people who have expertise or some measure of authority, we don't think that their authority should actually in any way change anything about our own lives. Why? Because we've answered the question, who's in charge here, with me. I'm my own authority. And the same thing was true in the first century. And this is the question that Mark is answering at the outset of his Gospels. As we've been studying Mark chapter 1 and we continue to study it, you're going to see it over and over again, this theme. He's answering the question, who's in charge here? It makes sense when you think about the context because he's writing to people who have been living under the authority of the scribes and the Pharisees. So those were the Jewish religious leaders at the time. Under the Sadducees, they were the Jewish political authorities who led the Sanhedrin that was like the Jewish Supreme Court at, the, at that time. They were living under the invasive control of and the absolute authority of the Roman Empire. And as we just read, some of them are even under the control of demons. Mark wants to show us who's really in charge. 
So let's slow down and walk through the story here. Verse 21, it says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And so let's pause there for, for a moment. Capernaum is a, a fishing village, and it was on the, the, the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a strategic ministry location for two main reasons. Number one, it was right near the main trade route in that region. And so that not only made traveling between cities easier for Jesus and his disciples, but like D.C., it also gave them the opportunity to reach people who were traveling in and out of town on business. But it was also strategic because two of Jesus' disciples, Peter and James, were from Capernaum, and that's where their families lived. So you remember, Jesus is from another town. He's from Nazareth. And so a lot of scholars believe that Jesus probably lived with Peter's family during his ministry campaign throughout Galilee. So you read through the Gospels and you see Capernaum became kind of a headquarters for Jesus' Galilean ministry. Now, I don't know if you've ever wondered or had this thought as you uh, read, have read through the Gospels, uh, but sometimes I used to wonder, how did Jesus just walk up in the synagogue, take the mic, and start teaching? Like, how does that work? Like, we know, you know, Peter was a little crazy, kept a shank on him at all times. And, and so did they just pull up to the synagogue and just, just say, preacher, you're not preaching today. We brought our own preach. Is that how that works? Like, imagine that in our modern-day church setting. Like, this is, no, this, this, is not, this is not how it works. So let me explain this. Jewish towns often had one or sometimes more than one local synagogue. And the synagogue was, it was like a school and a community center and a worship facility all in one. And during Sabbath worship, there would be readings from the Old Testament and then a message from one of the local members. Most synagogues didn't have like a full-time rabbi who kind of was responsible for the teaching uh, every, every week. And so if there was ever a visiting rabbi in town, especially a popular one, they would invite him to give the message. This was a policy called the freedom of the synagogue, where the ruler of the synagogue had the freedom to invite a visiting rabbi to give the message on any particular Sabbath. So Jesus is teaching that day, and Mark doesn't give any detail about what Jesus taught, but look at how the people respond to his teaching. Verse 22 says they were astonished because he's taught as one who had authority. Not as the scribes taught. See, Jesus' teaching was different. And it wasn't just his teaching style or his, his public speaking ability. People were amazed by the kind of authority he claimed in his teaching. Think about it. If you're writing a research paper, how do you support your arguments and substantiate your claims? Well, you reference other scholars that are known to be experts in that field. In other words, you borrow their authority to boost the credibility of your writing. High school students, that's why we learn, right, to, to do footnotes and to do a bibliography, which sidebar was always the part I hated the most. It would take me longer to do the bibliography than the actual paper. Just why I didn't do good in, didn't do good in school. Do good in school, okay? But this is exactly how the scribes taught. You see this all over the Gospels. They would always rely on the authority of Moses or the interpretations of a particular rabbinical tradition. But Jesus doesn't need footnotes. 
He doesn't need a cosign in order to substantiate his claims. He doesn't need to borrow somebody else's authority in order to boost his credibility. Jesus taught according to his own divine authority, the authority of God himself. And this is why he was constantly challenging and correcting Jewish interpretations of the Old Testament. You see this all throughout the Gospels. You just think about the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. When he's teaching in Matthew chapter 5, let me just give you one example where he's redefining uh, morality as something that starts internally and expresses itself externally. Verse 27, Matthew chapter 5, and some of you are familiar with this. Jesus says, you have heard it was said. In other words, your your rabbis have taught you, Old Testament, uh, um, Old Covenant tradition has taught you that you shall not commit adultery. Right on. Adultery is wrong. But I say to you, authority, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's redefining or correcting morality as something that is rooted in the human heart. It starts in the heart and works its way out in our lives. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 7, it says the same thing. The crowds were astonished by his teaching. People had the same reaction when he taught about the injustice happening in the temple in Mark chapter 11. When he taught about the afterlife in Matthew 22. And one of the most controversial examples of his teaching is recorded in John chapter 5. Just listen to this. John chapter 5. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 37. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, it is the scriptures that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You skip down to verse 45. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Here's why. For he wrote about me. Pause, y'all. Pause. The Jewish leaders already thought Jesus was blasphemous. And now he just claimed to have more authority than Moses, who wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the foundation of the Jewish covenant, and said that the entire Old Testament was ultimately about himself. This is wild. So the people are astonished. Jesus is blowing their minds because they've never heard God's word taught like this before. And in the middle of his sermon, verse 23, immediately there's a man with a demon being controlled by demonic power. And according to Scripture, demons are real. And I know some of you might say, well, I don't believe this is actually literal. I don't believe demons actually exist, and I'd ask you, why not? Why not? Now, some of you may not even believe God exists yet, 
But if you do, if it's possible, listen, if it's possible that good spiritual beings exist like God and angels, then why isn't it possible that evil spiritual beings exist? On what basis do we pick and choose? We believe that there's a higher power and there's a good God somewhere, right? But we say, but demons don't exist. What if the Bible is right about this? And it is. That there is a powerful spiritual dimension to the evil and suffering that we face in our world and in our personal lives. That there are real evil spirits that are dedicated to distracting us from God, enslaving us to sin, and robbing us of the abundant life that God wants for us. And listen, Christians from other parts of the world see this so much more clearly than we often do in the West. And it's not because they're stupid or superstitious. It's often because they are much more aware that there are some things in this world that can't be explained purely by natural reasons. This isn't mythology. Demons aren't symbolic characters that the author is using to represent evil in the world. They're not just misguided pre-scientific interpretations of mental illness. Demons are evil angels that have joined Satan in rebellion against God. They hate God. And therefore, they hate all of humanity who are the only creatures that were made in the image of God. And they especially and obsessively hate the people of God, those who have been redeemed by Jesus and have joined his mission to be a part of bringing redemption to others. These are personal, spiritual beings who are dedicated to filling the world with deception, division, and destruction. Now, to be fair... Throughout history, there have been many people and even whole societies that didn't understand certain diseases, so they just blamed it on a demon. There's people that do this today. You got a headache, it's a demon. You don't need Tylenol, you need an exorcism. This is not, this is not what we actually see in the Bible. You just read through the Gospel of Mark. Clearly, Jesus and his followers recognize the difference between disease and demon possession and other forms of affliction. But the Bible reveals the complex, multifaceted nature of evil and suffering in our world and doesn't reduce it down to just some oversimplified explanation. There are physical, psychological, social, moral, and spiritual dimensions to evil and suffering in the world and in our lives. And according to God's word, demons play an active role in that. And listen, I want to be clear. What we're reading about here in Mark 1 is a real but a very unusual experience, which is why Most of y'all have never experienced like a direct demonic encounter. Some of you probably have. I have. Here in the U.S. and abroad on the mission field. And if you ever experienced that, if you think you're experiencing that now, I, I don't want you to be confused or afraid. I want you to be equipped with the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to resist the devil and he will flee. He has no authority in the life of a follower of Jesus. But listen, most of the time, y'all, most of the time, demons operate like undercover agents. Not like boisterous, dramatic monsters. They're more subtle than they are sensational, more suggestive than they are coercive. 
And listen, we see that. We see that in the way Satan and demons are described throughout the scriptures. Just think about it. All the way in the beginning, in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Satan is described as crafty. He's described as a liar and the father of lies in John chapter 8, as disguising himself as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. False teaching is described as the doctrine of deceitful demons in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And this is what makes them so dangerous and effective. What we see in Mark 1 is an example of a direct demonic attack. But as you study scripture, listen, this is so important to understand. As you study scripture, you'll see that Satan typically works not through direct demonic attack, but through day-to-day demonic activity. Not typically through direct demonic attack, but his his MO, his primary strategy is through day-to-day demonic activity. And we don't have time today to unpack all of what that looks like. We just say, what does... What does day-to-day demonic activity look like? Well, it's all over the Bible. The Bible shows us that we face a triple threat every single day. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is around us, right? The social environment around us where sin is normalized and perpetuated. The flesh is within us. It's our inner appetite for sin and our inner resistance against God. And the devil, Satan, is against us. He's the one operating behind the scenes, coordinating the ideas and systems of evil that appeal to our flesh. And I love how how David put it in his secret church teaching on spiritual warfare. Listen, he said, the flesh is the hook, the world is the bait, and Satan is constantly baiting the hook. Listen, what this means is that the ideas in our culture that contradict God's word and the desires in our hearts and the impulses in our bodies that tempt us away from God are actually being energized and exploited by spiritual powers of evil. And no wonder God constantly warns us in Scripture to be alert and sober-minded. Now, we're going to get into all of that in more detail as we study the gospel of Mark. But notice, Mark doesn't go into any detail about this man with a demon is experiencing. Now, he will when when we get to chapter 5. But the reason he doesn't hear is because in chapter 1, Mark's focus isn't on the power of demons and the practice of spiritual warfare. His focus is on the power and authority of Jesus. And you see that on display in the way Jesus responds, uh, in the way the demon responds to Jesus. The demon cries out in verse 24, just from Jesus' teaching. Immediately the demon cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? We know who you are. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And this is what happens whenever demons encounter Jesus throughout the Gospels, they fold in the presence of Jesus because they understand exactly who Jesus really is and they know that they're already defeated and will one day be completely destroyed under the judgment of God. And this is what Mark wants us to see right at the beginning of his Gospel. He wants us to see who Jesus really is. The crowds think he's just a miracle worker. 
The Jewish leaders think he's a false teacher. The Romans think he's just another revolutionary, and the disciples are still trying to figure it out. But the demons know Jesus is the Holy One of God. Amen. He's the Holy One of God. Which, listen, which, which doesn't just mean he came from God. This is a divine title. It's a way of saying he is God, God incarnate, God who has come to us in human form, as Paul would later write in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And whereas the demon is described as unclean, evil, unfit to dwell in the presence of God, Jesus is the Holy One the very embodiment of the presence of God on earth, perfectly sinless and infinitely supreme over all that he has made. He is the creator, and everything else in the natural realm and in the spiritual realm is subject to his authority. And so you think about the vision in Isaiah chapter 6. If you're familiar with that vision that God gives Isaiah in in, in chapter 6 where God, the Lord, is sitting on the throne, high and exalted, And there are these massive angelic creatures called seraphim. And they're hovering like helicopters around the throne room of God, all of them yelling at the top of their lungs, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Like this is what's happening in heaven, is that these creatures are acknowledging the holy one, the one who has all authority. Now, we hear something like that or we read something like that in Isaiah 6, and we don't really feel it. So let me just help you for a second. Like, we don't exactly know what these seraphim are. In fact, they were called the burning ones in the literal language. But they are fierce, angelic creatures with six wings. Now, I want you to imagine if this ceiling opened up right now or wherever you are, and these things just start swooping down in the room. Let me just tell you just a couple things real quick. Number one, sermon's over. (laughs) Don't wait for me. You know what I'm saying? Like, you got God's Word and God's Spirit. You can just figure it out, right? It's a wrap, okay? Secondly, none of y'all are going to be just sitting there chilling like you're chilling right now. Every single one of us would react. We would be terrified. We would be hiding ourselves from these angelic creatures. And it's the exact opposite in the presence of God. Because in the presence of God, it's the seraphim that are hiding themselves. Covering themselves with their wings out of reverence for God, the Holy One, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. And the demons have a similar response in the presence of Jesus. They too recognize him as the Holy One. Not in reverent worship like the angels, but in complete panic. They are terrified as they are forced to reckon with the power and authority of the Holy One of God. And so what happens in verse 25 is unprecedented. You look at ancient Near Eastern literature and you always cast out evil spirits by a higher power. But remember, Jesus doesn't need a cosign. 
He doesn't need to borrow authority to boost his credibility. Jesus is not a sorcerer. He is the son of God. No spells, no incantations, no amulets or sage hanging outside your door, no good luck charms, just the power and authority of his word. Be silent and come out of him. This is the authority of Jesus. And the unclean spirit, verse 26, convulsing the man, And crying out with a loud voice came out of him, and they were all amazed. And we would be too. We would have some questions too. They had some questions. What is this? What in the world is happening here? This is a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, this may raise a question for you. And if you're thoughtful as you read through the Bible especially when you're reading about stuff like demons, you should probably have some questions. This would raise some questions, and one of them might be this. If demons are so real and so evil and so destructive, and if Jesus is all-powerful, then why doesn't he just get rid of all the demons? Why are we playing this game, Jesus? You know what I mean? Like, why is he just occasionally casting out some of them? And that's where Jesus is inviting all of us to lean in. Come on, listen, if you're exploring Christianity, this is where Jesus is inviting us to lean in because this is just the beginning here. The Bible teaches that without Jesus, all of us are trapped in the domain of darkness. Every single one of us held captive under the sway of demonic ideologies and demonic power that are designed to keep us away from God and from abundant life. The problem is we've developed a a sort of Stockholm Syndrome. You know what Stockholm Syndrome is? Where a hostage or, or a victim almost develops like a, a, a weird bond with their captor to the point that they won't even begin to defend the one that's holding them hostage. And this is what has happened to every single one of us, where because of our sin nature, we actually enjoy our bondage. We've become confused by all the smoke and mirrors. And just like our foreparents, Adam and Eve, we believe the demonic lie that our bondage to sin is actually freedom, that our confusion is actually wisdom, that what God prohibits is actually good and what God commands is actually bad. And so rather than trusting the authority of God, we double down on our rebellion and we make our home in the darkness. And listen, God has every right to leave us there. God had every right to leave me at home in the darkness. But praise God, he's not just the God with all authority. He is a God who is full of goodness and mercy and grace. And he doesn't want to leave us in the darkness. So you know what he did? You read the opening pages of John's gospel. The light has sunk into the darkness. God himself in human form came into the darkness. And he came to rescue you. And he came to rescue me. And we've been clinging for my whole life growing up in church. Constantly hearing the good news of the gospel. Constantly seeing it modeled by my parents and other family members. I would hold on to the darkness because I was under the demonic lie that the darkness was better than the light of God's will. 
And by his mercy, he sends Jesus into the darkness. And what we see here in Mark 1 is just the beginning. Jesus is just giving a preview of his power, a commercial for the work he came to accomplish on the cross, a foretaste of the day when we will fully and finally, he will fully and finally establish the kingdom of God on earth. Because listen, Casting out demons was just a temporary demonstration of his supernatural authority. But the decisive blow to all the spiritual forces of evil came when Jesus died for our sins in our place. And then he rose from the grave, absolutely defeating all spiritual forces of evil so that we might know that we can be free and forgiven, that we can live in the light of his truth and in his presence. And so as Paul wrote in Colossians 2.15, through the cross and resurrection, he, God the Father, listen, disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. And I love this, y'all. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. And so now Paul writes, Philippians 2, 9, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, just like we saw with the demon, and every tongue should confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's the Holy One. He's the one who has all authority. And so let me pull all of this together for us. Because I know this was a lot. What does all of this mean for you? What what does it mean for, for me? Well, first of all, first of all, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus... There is more going in your life than you can see with your natural eye. There are unseen forces of evil that are dedicated to keeping you from the abundant life that Jesus has purchased for you. And today is the intervention of God through his word to say to you, you don't have to live that way. So the invitation for you today here or wherever you're watching from is the same invitation that I finally accepted as a college student, that you can turn from your sin and and acknowledge your helplessness before God, acknowledge the bondage that you've been living in and say, Jesus, you are the one with all all authority. I want you to be Lord. I, I need you to be my Savior. I put my trust in what you've done for me in your death and your resurrection. And God promises that he will transfer you out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. But there's many of us who have trusted in Jesus. And what does this mean for us? Well, I was reading this passage in my own personal time, and I'll be honest, all I kept thinking about were demons. You know what I mean? When you read this passage, I mean, you're going to have, I mean, we're just going to be thinking about demons. I, I had some questions about demon possession and spiritual warfare and all kinds of stuff. And like I said, we're going to spend some time on those questions later in this series. The Holy Spirit just stopped me in my tracks for a moment just in studying the passage. And I don't want us to miss the primary thing I think God is saying to us here in chapter 1. And I was helped by the commentary of a seven-year-old. 
was talking to my friend Mary last week. She and her husband Mark are out at our Montgomery County location, and she was telling me about how they've been reading through the Gospel of Mark with their seven-year-old daughter, Charlotte. And so they've been teaching her whenever she reads the Bible to, 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 to think about the question, what is this revealing to me about God? And so after Charlotte read this same passage we're studying this week, she, she went up to, to Mary and said, Mommy, I think this story is revealing that Jesus has all authority. And I think she's spot on. That's the main point of this whole section in chapter 1. Jesus is the one who has all authority. And there's different responses to his authority in this passage. The demons recognize his authority. They intellectually agree that Jesus has all authority, and they even outwardly obey him in that moment. But they don't fully surrender to him. They don't want to worship him. They recognize his authority, but they still resist it. Theirs is just an intellectual response to Jesus' authority, but the crowds have an emotional response. They aren't really convinced. They're just impressed amazed and intrigued by Jesus' teaching and his power. And so maybe, maybe you, you've intellectually agree with some of Jesus' teaching, or, or maybe you've had times where you've been moved emotionally by his love and his wisdom and his power. But you know what the intellectual and emotional response have in common? Still a lack of surrender. A lack of love and worship and joyful devotion to Jesus as Lord. And so if Jesus is the one who has all authority, let me ask you, how are you responding to the authority of Jesus? That's what I want to leave you with. How are you responding to the authority of Jesus? Let me give it to you even more direct. Listen, in what area of your life are you resisting or simply neglecting the authority of Jesus? That's the question I want you to think about with your friends your spouse, your family, in your group, in what area of your life are you resisting or simply neglecting the authority of Jesus? Have you given Jesus authority over how you spend your money? He has authority over the demons, and we hesitate to give him authority over our bank account. Have you given Jesus authority over your plans for your future? Your college plans, your career plans, your retirement plans. Have you ever, have you even paused to ask him what he wants you to do? Have you given him authority over your sexuality and your relationships? Over your anger and unforgiveness? Over your politics? Over your belief system? over your ideas about the afterlife? Listen, the authority of Jesus is good news. And in any area of our lives, if we don't see his authority in that area as good news, it's only because we're not seeing Jesus for who he really is. It makes me think about Dr. Ben Carson. I know you're like, how? Well, let me just let me explain. <clears throat> now, whatever, whatever you think about Ben Carson politically, like, I promise you I'm not getting into all that, okay? Just set that aside 
for a minute, I just want us to think about like the gifted hands, Ben Carson, like the legendary neurosurgeon, Ben Carson, from Baltimore, you know what I mean? Several years ago, my mom started having debilitating, like stabbing pain in her face. It's completely unbearable. I don't know if you ever seen a loved one or, or a, a parent like go through something like that where it's just absolutely debil- it's just it just knocks the wind out of you just it's so hard to watch that it was absolutely debilitating for her and she couldn't she just couldn't figure out what was going on she went from doctor to doctor prescription to prescription just trying to find some kind of way to stop the pain trying to understand what was happening nobody could figure out so one day one day on this tells you a lot about my mom one day, on, like on a whim, she decided, you know what, I'm just going to call John Hopkins and ask to speak to Ben Carson. <laughs> and if you know my mom, this is not like an abnormal type of thing, you know what I mean? So she calls the hospital and she calls and says, may I speak to Dr. Ben Carson, please? So she's on hold. And then there's a voice on the other end of the line that says, Hi, this is Dr. Carson. How may I help you? Now, I don't actually know if that's precisely how it happened, but it's like that's the legend in my family at this point, you know what I mean? But I do know she called John Hopkins to get Dr. Ben Carson, and somehow she ended up like in direct contact with him. And so she began to go in for several consultations, and almost immediately he was able to diagnose her condition. It was called trigeminal neuralgia. It's a problem with the trigeminal nerve that that starts at the base of your brain and kind of splinters through your face. And um, a lot of doctors say it is literally the most excruciating pain known to humanity. I don't know if that's true. I don't really want to find out. I'll just take their word for it. And so long story short, he ended up personally performing her brain surgery. We got to meet him, and she was finally healed. Now, here's why I share that. You can imagine the relief she felt. After going from doctor to doctor, day to day, month to month, in debilitating pain, you can imagine the relief to finally have found somebody that has some real authority and actually has the expertise to accurately diagnose the problem and effectively perform the solution. And listen to me, this is what it feels like to finally realize who Jesus is. This is what it feels like to finally see him as the one who's worthy of your trust and your surrender. It's like finding freedom because his authority, it's not an authority that harms you. It's an authority that heals you. It's an authority that doesn't restrict you. It frees you to be who he's made you to be. And so listen, listen, as I pray for you, listen. If there's any area of your life or maybe for your whole life, you've never trusted Jesus and surrendered to his authority. Or there's some particular area where you're resisting or neglecting that authority. I want you, I know I get excited sometimes and I talk loud and me and David both are emotional preachers. We can get super loud and I want you to hear God's voice to you through his word in this moment. Like a good father that says, come here. 
Like, let me have that. Because I've designed this life for you with me. I'm the one who made you. I have all authority to give you the life that you are chasing in the domain of darkness. But it's the life that can only be found in the light of my truth and my will and my presence. And God says in that particular area or with your whole life, would you just come to me? Would you bow the knee and surrender to my authority? And so I want to pray for you here, wherever you're watching from. If you've never made a decision to surrender your life, your eternal life, to the authority of Jesus in the gospel, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I'm going to pray and lead you in prayer, and you can just repeat after me in the quietness of your own heart to turn from your sin and trust in the Jesus who died for you and rose and has all authority right now to forgive you and to free you, to change you. Wherever you are, let's just bow our heads and you can just repeat this after me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving me in the dark. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for the power that you make available to me. And God, I acknowledge I need that power. I need your forgiveness. I turn from my sin and I put my trust in Jesus alone. Father, I pray for anyone who from the sincerity of their hearts in genuine faith pray that not to me but to you. God, I have no authority to forgive sin. I have no authority to grant people access to eternal life. But you have it, God. And I pray that in your mercy, you would save them. You would free them and you would begin the process of changing and transforming them like you did for so many of us. I pray for those who in some area of their life, God, have been resisting or neglecting your authority. I even pray for people listening and watching or sitting in this room right now, God, who are facing demonic attack in their life. God, I pray that they would not be confused or fearful, that they would not doubt your power, God, but that they would just surrender to your authority, that they would believe and proclaim the truth of the gospel, that they would trust the power of the Holy Spirit in that area of their life. And I pray, God, that you would bring freedom. Freedom, God. Thank you. Thank you, God, for revealing the goodness and the wisdom of your authority. Where would we be? Where would we be, Father, without it? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.